time is the one resource we never get back. And so how are we choosing to use our time with these friends? Is it, is it worth our time or is it just a space holder, you know? So it's that invitation, man. It's like, oh, it's so good. Hello, friends, and welcome to another episode of Thriving in Recovery. I'm your host, Bryce Givens, joined alongside our co-host, Justin Harris. Thriving in Recovery is dedicated to sharing stories of recovered and thriving individuals to empower others on their own path of recovery. And today's guest, Michael Mazel, is definitely thriving and definitely crushing it. She shares her message of recovery and how she's helping others on their own recovery path. Michael is currently the Director of Alumni and Recovery Support Services for Vertava Health, and she's also the host of two podcasts, the first one, Unfiltered Recovery, and her solo podcast called Monday State of Mind. She's pushing the limits on the conversation. She's a thought leader in the space. Definitely go give her a listen, and we really hope you enjoy this episode. Michael Mazel, a recovery dork, a hurricane of happiness, a podcaster, author, and definitely a thought leader. Michael, how you doing? I am so good, Bryce. So good. I'm so happy to be here. <laughs> yeah, well, we're grateful for you to be here as well. Um, thanks for coming on today. Um, yes. So let's jump right into it. Let's hear your story. Can you give us uh, a little bit of background about yourself and and maybe living in addiction and how that transpired to you ending up here on this podcast? Yeah. Um, I'll, I won't take too much time about that. I was like, I was in addiction. I found recovery. Now I'm here. Boom. We're done. Sweet. Awesome. <laughs> Sweet. Awesome. No, um, I would, I would say like just high level, uh, I come from a family where alcoholism is rampant on both sides of my family. Uh, I have an identical twin sister who, um, is normal. I, that's how I identify people that don't, that don't have a drug or alcohol addiction. I don't know how she survived that, but I was the one that became the, the addict and the alcoholic in the family. It was something that right when I took my first drink at age 13, it was a house party with all of my friends. I grew up in a small mountain town in Telluride, Colorado. And so it was really, you know, we were all like family, our friends, all the friends were, we had a house party at a friend's house and I had my first sip of alcohol. And it was one of those things where I was like, I like, I like this, you know, and I was kind of like, where have you been? And so since that house party at age 13, it didn't completely infiltrate my life. I was able, you know, it was one of those things throughout after that time, it would be on the weekends in high school. It wasn't really an issue because I was an athlete. So I really had my sports and my coaches that kept me in line. And it wasn't until I went to college, I went to college at the university of Kansas and KU. Rock Chalk Jayhawk, go KU. I bleed crimson and blue, baby. Woo! Oh, I had to get that out there. Um, it wasn't until I went to college that that's when I knew that my drinking was a lot different than everybody else's. I recognized that I was a blackout drinker. I was also someone that hid alcohol in my room before we all went out. I, Whenever we went out, that was never enough. I always had to drink before. and I always was wondering like why, like why I felt that way. And, you know, if nobody else was doing it, but I, I just continued to do that. And I, you know, barely got through college. And then I went 
back home to Telluride and my drinking again in college, you drink all the time. There's always a reason. Thirsty Thursday, the weekends, Monday, like Tuesdays, it was just, it was a thing. I go back home to Telluride. And if any of you are familiar that are listening to this podcast with small mountain ski towns, then you know that there's always a reason to drink and then also do drugs. Drugs are a big part of my story as well. And so when I moved back home, that pattern of drinking just carried right into my adult life. Uh, I waited tables and then I skied during the day. It was a work hard, play hard mindset. So I didn't really think that I had a problem because everybody else did what I did. Uh, when there was a powder day, you drank. You hiked a 14er, you drank. Summer softball, you drank. There was always a reason and everybody did it. So I was like, I found my tribe. That worked. Um, until my mid twenties when it wasn't working and my family started to get concerned about me and I thought, oh, it was Telluride. So I did the geographic thing, right? I went to Chicago and got a job in, in spa managing and the gray days, it just got to me. I blamed the gray days and everybody wearing blacks and I kept drinking and it became an issue because I started drinking by myself and at home. I didn't go out with friends. I just did it by myself. And so that lasted not even a year. And I moved back to Colorado and back to Telluride. When I moved back to Telluride, um, when I was about 26, that's when I met my then fiance and he was, he drank just like I did. And so what I realized though, as I was getting older, it wasn't working for me. It I couldn't, I, my hangovers were getting horrible. And so that's when I really relied on cocaine and then cocaine was making me super depressive. And so it got to the point, uh, we'll fast forward. I started losing jobs. I couldn't keep a job. It got to the point where I had to bring alcohol with me to work. So I wouldn't shake. I had to set alarms every single night on my phone to wake up to drink so that I wouldn't dry heave. And so that I could not feel like my heart was pounding and like out of my chest. I, the tipping point for me with my addiction is when my older sister was getting married and I was 29 at the time and she begged me to make it to her wedding. Uh, I really tried to detox and make it to Chicago for her wedding with my then fiance. What happened was I detoxed too fast. I was trying to have myself come off of alcohol too fast. And I ended up on the way out to Chicago. I ended up having a grand mal seizure in the car. I flatlined and I had ended up and woke up in Barrington, Colorado in a, a hospital. And I had no idea where I was. And I had tubes all running out of me. My mouth was bloody because I bit through my tongue. I was so embarrassed. And my sister said, you can't come to my wedding. Like you're too sick. You can't come. And I didn't even think about it. Right. I immediately got out of the hospital. The first stop I went to was the liquor store and that's the insanity of this disease. And I went home. I really ruined my sister's wedding. They were only thinking about me on her wedding day, calling me, seeing if I was alive and okay. And that's the selfishness of this disease. Uh, it only took a few weeks later before I had what I like to call it. It was a spiritual experience in my house. My dad had been begging me to go to treatment. It was one of those things where like, I felt like I was dying. I, my heart was pittering and I was, I just looked up and I was like, I'm either going to get this or I'm going to die. And so I made the call to my dad and I said, dad, 
I'm ready. Like, get me out of here. So my dad picked me up and the doctor told him to let me drink the whole way so I wouldn't have another seizure. And my dad was like, this is so messed up. And I knew the whole way though, you guys, like the, the coolest thing about it is that the whole way up to the Harmony Foundation in Estes Park, Colorado, I knew I was done. And so when I took that last sip and I walked into treatment, like there was this conviction about me that I was like, never again, like I am done. And so that's when my recovery journey started. And here we are. <laughs> that is fantastic. That's amazing. Um, wow. Lots to unpack there. Um, first of all, I want to ask you, how close are you with your twin sister? We're really close now. We, are you, yeah. Are you the only two siblings or were you, was the sister that you were talking about? Who's my older married? sister? She was your She's older a year sister. and four months older. Okay. Are you all three pretty close? Yeah, we're, we're very, very close. They sometimes think we're triplets. My older sister doesn't like that. (laughs) (laughs) That's amazing. Um, you mentioned, so like that breakthrough moment in the car. So was it in the car? Like when you were driving up there and like you said, you like have this conviction about like, I know right now here in this moment that I'm fully done. Like I'm ready to stop. Like, was that like the moment or was there things leading up to that? Uh, you know, after getting out of the hospital in Barrington, like, what was that like? What was the breakthrough? Like it was, it was in the car because what's interesting, Bryce is like a part of my story that I didn't talk about is that I had tried AA that year leading up to, to quitting and I made it 37 days sober, but I was not ready. Like I was going to get my family off my back. And I had moments where I was like, I can do this, but in that, that brief period of sobriety, I was like, I was not ready. I was not ready at all. I need, I needed to make the decision for Michael. And so when I was in the car, like nursing and holding that bottle for dear life, Evan Williams, green label, that's what it was. (laughs) Um, when I was holding that bottle, like I, I had so much embarrassment and anger mixed with motivation and like just literally a case of like the, the efforts, like I'm so done with this life and hurting myself and hurting my family and hurting my community because my community, my small town community knew about it. Like you can't hide in a small town. Let's be real here. Um, I was just, I didn't want to feel that way anymore. It was like, I was going to die or or I was going to live. And the whole way up there, I was like, I will do anything kind of like a foxhole prayer just like, I will do anything if I can make it. Like, I just want to live. That's so amazing. Um, so how long did you spend at harmony? Were you there for like a full time, full 28 day? Yeah, I was there from December 11th until January 10th. So my sobriety date is December 12th of 2015 because I checked in like super, super wasted. Let's be real here. It wasn't pretty. (laughs) Um, So yeah, I was there for a full month and it's exactly what I need. It's what I needed to help me get on the straight and narrow. Yeah. Oh, and let me, let me add something to this because this is important. Um, I spent Christmas, New Year's and my 30th birthday in treatment. And I, if anybody knows me, I, I love Christmas. Like I, I will have my Christmas tree up soon. Don't worry. Uh, and I say that and I, and I want to communicate that because there's never the right time to get sober. There's never going to be the right time. 
And I like cried and cried because I was like, I can't miss Christmas. I can't miss all these things. But then my, you know, my dad was like, you're not going to be around next Christmas if you can't figure it out. So I, I did have my dad ask Harmony when I was going up. I was like, dad, can you ask if they have a Christmas tree? <laughs> and so he's like, because that matters. Right. Um, and they did. So there was a Christmas tree. Thank goodness. But I will say choosing that time and knowing that there's never an ideal time. It was, it was probably the biggest blessing in the safest place I could be during the holiday seasons and starting a new decade of my life. <laughs> That's so true. And I know now that like this is being recorded in early November, um, that this time is, is coming up, right? The holidays are right around the corner. Halloween just happened. We've got Thanksgiving. We've got a bunch of different holidays. Um, coming up, what advice would you give somebody who's getting ready to go through this holiday season, um, who is in early recovery and, uh, definitely needs to hear something from somebody like yourself that has some prolonged sobriety and is living a life in recovery. Like what advice specifically would you give them coming into this holiday season? Don't hang out with your family. I Mm. would literally, if they are not supportive, and it is a triggering and toxic environment, hang out with your recovery community. Don't even celebrate the holidays if it's triggering. Don't put a tree up. I can't believe I said that, but I oh am going, but I'm going <laughs> to say it. Like, don't put a tree up. If you are freaking out about the holidays, you get to create your own story, your own perspective of what this time can mean for you in your recovery. Uh, perspective is everything. You don't have to celebrate the holidays because every, because you believe that society wants you to celebrate being sober, you know, go and find your recovery community. That's going to love you. And if you want to hang out and go to a friend's house, who's in recovery, go to their house. Because if there's one thing I can offer is like, you want to know that you are guaranteed safety and support in a time where emotions are already at an all time high with family or friends and you want to feel supported and you don't want to be questioned as to like, why are you feeling this way? You want to, you want people to say, I'm so glad that you were honest in how you feel. And that's where the environment is that you want to be. That's such good advice. Um, you know, we always more oftentimes than not, we talk about connection and community, uh, for you, uh, what has been uh, the biggest sense of community or where have you found the most community in, in your recovery recently? Um, I am 12 step ride or die. Like I am ride or die, uh, AA. Uh, and that's just, and that's just for me, like I support all pathways, but my, I have found the most unshakable, the most in intimate relationships. I could, I, uh, beyond my wildest dreams in AA. Uh, that is like, all I hang out with are people in recovery or in, in the rooms of AA. I have a bond of about, I'm on a group text of about 16 of us that are all around my same age. And we go to meetings together. We jump out of helicopters and heli ski together. We are going to do Thanksgiving together. And then we all go to Christmas at our parents, you know, families, you know, um, I live for my AA community. And I will say since I recently actually just relocated to a new town in Salida, I made sure to immediately get plugged in 90 and 90, even having six years clean and sober, it works. And I've already found another amazing community here. And why I like AA so much is because we are everywhere. 
with my job, I travel all over the US and I have family everywhere. And to me, that is the most important thing for me is to feel connected. And I feel connected knowing that I can walk into any room anywhere and I know you and you know me and we're in this together. That's amazing. And it's absolutely the truth. You know, a lot of our guests, we try to get a wide variety of guests with different backgrounds and different viewpoints on, on support groups. Um, but you know, the people, I think it's a common theme, especially what we're hearing from people is just like, regardless of whether or not it's AA or 12 step group or a non 12 step group, it's like the exact thing that you just mentioned, like you have to find a group where you can relate to other people. Um, and you can, you can go wherever it has to be easily accessible. Uh, and you have to make it a point to, to put yourself in those situations where other people can relate with you. So that's super cool. Um, what do you think in AA specifically in the 12 step process, has there been a single individual or somebody who's been like super instrumental in helping you get to where you're at right now? Is there, can you like pinpoint one particular person? Yeah. And, and I'm allowed to say his name because he recovers out loud. Uh, his name is Davo and he is actually one of my good friends who I went to high school. It's her dad. He's like my dad in AA. And he was, and he was the first one when I walked in, when I was still back in 2015, when I walked into the rooms of Telluride. And, and like I said, I was, I lasted 37 days. He was the first person I saw. And I was like, shoot, Davo's in here. Damn it. <laughs> and he's like, and he calls in, you know, and he was like, he was, he calls me little deal. And he's like, Hey, little deal. I was wondering when you were going to make it in here. And I was like, dang. And he has shown me so much unconditional love. He loved me until I could love myself. He loved me even when I didn't stay after 37 days. And when I came back, you know, um, in 20, in 2015, in 2016 to the rooms, he was there waiting. He is the person that even though I'm still not in Telluride, I get a text from him every single day. He is when, even when he's traveling and I have, and I have a female sponsor and for all of you that are in AA and know the whole deal here, I do have a female sponsor, but he is, he is that person that I never have to worry about him not answering the phone. And if he doesn't, he calls me back. He says those little sayings that at first I wanted to like kill him. I mean, that, that, that's a little extreme. I was like, I wanted to punch him. I was like, why are you saying these stupid things? Like meeting makers make it like what? And these sayings that he has said to me, especially meeting makers make it like it's ingrained in me. And, and also he's always told me, Michael, be the message of recovery, be it every day. And I need to hear those things. And, you know, and I, and he's been instrumental because of honesty. He is never afraid to call me out. And I know that he is so honest with me because he cares about me because this disease is life and death. And he's been my ride or die dad, best friend on this journey since the moment I tried it six years ago. That's so important. That's so amazing. That's so cool that you have uh, somebody like that. Who's like a second dad and that you grew up with, with knowing that, you know, that you knew this person growing up. So that's, that's awesome. Um, 
Was there, I mean, I, you know, we've talked about the 12 step stuff before and like, there's so many cliche sayings in 12 step, but they're cliche because they work and they like are so applicable. Um, other than meeting makers, make it, <laughs> what are a couple like sayings that you can take that come to the top of mind from 12 step? Oh, I'm like, where do we start? Right. <laughs> um, the other two that I really, that I really like is let go or get dragged because mm. left to my own devices, my ego is not my amigo. And sometimes my, my ego wants to be in my front pocket and not my back pocket. And, um, I have to remember on a lot of days, like, like I can't take my will back. And like, and if I'm in my will, I am getting dragged like on a dirt road behind a truck, getting beat to shit. And when I let go, life is easy. And I think it's one of those things, you know, Bryce, that when I continue to tell myself, and I actually seriously have it on a post-it on my my desk right now, and it says, how much am I willing to let go? When I continually let go, it, I, my life gets amazing. And it's scary because I'm not used to even six years into this. I'm not used to my life being good, but I have to ask myself, you know, Michael, like let go or get dragged. And then the other one is literally a day at a time because sometimes I am such a type A OCD. I mean, I don't know if you can tell, maybe you can't. Um, I future trip or I try to control outcomes in, in, in like, you know, an hour, 24 hours, a month, a year from now. And I have to remember that as much as I plan, because I'm allowed to plan so much, all I really have is today. All I have is this moment, you know? And so I'm, I have to bring it back to the basics sometimes, you know, especially if I'm in it, or even if I'm experiencing a really great moment, it's like, this is what happens a day at a time as a result of me working a program of recovery. The last one, it's not really a AA one, but I like to say be here now. When I say be here now, it's like, Michael, where are your feet? Are your feet right here? Um, because again, I'm a big future tripper, even, you know, and, uh, I always have to say like, what are you thinking about right now in your head, Michael? Are you here right now with your friends in this moment, soaking it in? So yeah, that's what I got. I could go on for days, but I'll stop there. I love that. Be here now, be present. Um, speaking of being here now, what, how do you define recovery today? Ah, I, I define it like I defined it as an invitation. When I look at recovery, it's an invitation to heal. Uh, I define it as a beautiful mess. Um, and I say that because recovery is for me every day, that invitation, are you going to choose recovery and are you going to choose everything that's involved in it? to elevate, to thrive, to be like next level, or are you, or are you just going to live as a dry drunk, a dry addict and just be like, what, you know, what is this? I say it's a beautiful mess because like, as awesome as my life is like recovery is messy. Even on the most awesome, pristine days, I call it messy because so many awesome things are going on that it's like, it's a mess and it's a beautiful mess. And I think that it's one of those things. I don't like to just define it like what I would maybe some people 
would go straight to like the principles, like, oh, when you transform your life or you like, you, you get to find like, you know, live out your best life, you know, like I just look at it. It is like just straight up an invitation. I love that. This is so great. This is so fun. <laughs> this is, can I jump in? I got lots of questions over here and don't even know where to start. <laughs> you talked about your alcoholism being rampant in your family and was your dad an alcoholic? Yes. He's actually still um, a very, he's a very much a practicing alcoholic. And it's one of those things we were best friends and that's, and it's hard to talk about because we were best friends in my active addiction. Like I would go out to, cause he still lived in, he still lives in Telluride. I would go out and I would, you know, to dinner with him multiple times a week, we'd sit on the deck. We would drink our whiskeys, talk about the stars and the good old days. You know, like my dad was um, heavily involved, you know, just in, in illegal practices too. I'll just say that uh, my dad is an amazing dad what was really hard is when he saw me go down, like really go down. And then we had a family weekend at the Harmony Foundation and he got to learn about addiction. That's when the game changed with our relationship because he sees something in me that makes him uncomfortable. And, and I'm in acceptance of it. We do have beautiful moments, but it's hard because I chose to, to get better. And his, it's one of those, like, he's a functioning alcoholic. And I think that is the worst place to be. Um, but I love him, but yes, it is very rampant on that side. On my mom's side, very rampant Irish Catholic whiskey and Guinness, man. Sure. For sure. Well, at least he had the foresight to know that you needed uh, recovery and, and helped you into that. So that's, that's fantastic. Yeah. You know, a lot of the people we talk to on this show and just talk to in life, they, relapse over and over and over again before they finally figure out and have a big enough why on getting sober. How did you manage to avoid that? Why was it different for you? Do you think? You know, and that's so, I, you know, it's interesting because I think about that a lot, like quantifying relapse or why does that happen? You know, and I, I feel like, and not like I think like, people are the chosen ones or the people are miracles. I do believe when people stay sober, they are miracles. I believe that I, I personally just got to that complete desperation. Like I just got to a point where I was like, if I don't do what it, what it takes, like willing to go to any lengths to be a better human, like I'm going to die. And I, and I did die. I flatlined in an ambulance, you know? And I think like if I could with so many people that relapse, just put my hand on their heart and be like, you don't need to do this. You know, I don't, would it change? I don't know. What I do know is that I'm grateful that I got the gift of desperation and that I continue to have that gift of desperation because I have like horrible nightmares of how my life was. I was like, we're not going back there. I'm going to a meeting. Um, but yeah, it's just that gift of desperation. Yeah, good for good for you and figuring that out. It, it you know, a lot of people enablers, you know, oh, they got to have to they have to hit rock bottom. They have to hit rock bottom, and uh, like rock bottom is whatever you decide it is, right? It's it's, yes. it's it's not something terrible happening to you. It 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 well, I guess it is something terrible happening to you, but it's it's your definition of terrible and 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 having enough. So nice job on. 
figuring that out early and 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 and, and getting getting it out. A little bit off topic, but I feel the need to ask. There's some kind of metal or ribbon on the doorknob behind you. Oh. I wanted to ask what that. There's a couple of them. It looks like. Yes, those are all my my marathons. So, um, I fell in love in recovery. I used to be a runner before recovery a little bit. Running has become a big part of my recovery now. It's very meditative for me. And I will actually be running the New York Marathon in 2024. No, 2023, next year, 2023. Nice. I get to run for That's I get awesome. to run New York. Yeah. Um, and then I've 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 qualified for a couple of different big trail marathons. Um, that has it's it's become, like I said, it's meditative. I look at um doing my trail running, just like recovery. It's a day at a time. It's a, it's a mile at a time. It's a minute at a time. And I'm like, not like trading one addiction for another, but let's be real here. Um, I'm like, <laughs> it's healthier. It's more healthy. And I actually found, um, a huge sober running community, not only up in Denver, but down here in Salida. And so a couple of these races, um, I've done with sober friends, and so it's really cool to not only meet them in the rooms, but to have people that are sober and that, you know, want to continue to elevate your life. Cause I just can't, I didn't get sober to just sit in a room and drink coffee and talk about my feelings. You know, I got sober so I could also get out and do like super badass things. Like the thought of running or doing a marathon or doing things like that, even a few years ago, I was like, no way. But I was like, if I can get sober and I can like cheat and like not cheat death, but like, you know, really cheat death every single day, that's powerful thing. That is powerful. And the ability to like to transform my mindset into being like, if you can do that, Michael, like what else can you do? And so that's where the marathoning, the marathons came in. And then I have my first ultra here in November. Oh, good for you. How, yeah. how long yeah. is that one? 50 miles. Yeah. So that's, and you know, and it's, it's just, I never thought my life could be as expansive as it is now. And that's a result of choosing recovery and doing the work. And like, sometimes I'm blown away and I scare myself with how powerful I believe the human mind is. It's like, it's freaking fascinating. It is. That's so cool. Yeah. Sure. Bryce and I not only share being six, you know, six, six and six, eight, but also our love of triathlon. So I love running from the meditative aspect to swimming. Eve is even more meditative for me, especially open water swimming, because there's no, usually when I run, I've got at least one earbud in listening to a book or something like that. But yeah. when I'm in the pool or well, the pool I swim in, they actually have a speaker in there so we can listen to some music, which is pretty fun. But I try to swim open water in the summer times. And that's just, it's just you and nature and you know, there's very few other people out there. So that's, that's really awesome. You you had commented before we hit the record button about, um, your unfiltered recovery podcast and going into places that aren't PC to talk about in recovery. I'm relatively new to the recovery scene. I don't have a, was, am not an addict and never had that story, but I'm definitely drawn to this world. And I, and I love it. And the more I get to know, the more I want to know. Um, but I would love for you to talk about these non-PC things in the places. Yeah. Juicy. Let's go. Yeah. Okay. So one of my favorite topics that we've talked about so far is talking about, you know, normalizing, talking about being in recovery in the workforce. There are so many companies in the U S that will pay for their employees to go to treatment, but don't you dare talk about it. 
the hardest one for me to come to grips with is especially teaching. Um, there are so many teachers that are in, that are some of my very best friends that are in recovery and they cannot talk about it. They feel that they can't talk about that they're in recovery because, oh, Susie's, Susie's mom is going to judge her and she's not going to be able to go to, to, to her class anymore because, oh, she like her teacher is in recovery and we're not going to celebrate that. We're going to frown upon it. And to me, it's, it's one of those things where people love their careers, but then they go and they get sober and there's a part of them that they're like, I want to share this but I can't even show up as who I am because society and my work tells me that I can't. And I look at it as like, we don't judge people that have cancer. We don't judge people that are in recovery from other mental health um, issues, whether it be like, you know, depression, especially, or if it's bipolar, like the fact that we still are okay with advocating for people to get better, but we're not advocating to talk about it so that it opens the doorway for other people to be like, hey, it actually is acceptable to talk about this because people die silently. And so I brought on um, someone on my podcast, actually our chief operating officer, like posing the questions like to different HR directors, you know, like what is it that you are willing to look at to change so that people, you know, feel like they can actually be who they are and not hide. It's, it's a big deal in the American culture still. Uh, the other thing that I really want that I talked about that is actually I really love it is it's not, you know, like what happens um, when you're in recovery. So we talk about like, oh, if you're in recovery, you should be fine. And people think that you're fine if you're working a program of recovery. But outside, more help is needed for people. And there's this stigma that, again, like you were talking about earlier with relapse, especially, you know not having compassion and there's still that judgment and people feeling bad for relapsing or being like, Hey, I'm sober, but I need to talk about like my sex abuse or my sex addiction or these other parts of them that are coming up now that they're clean and sober. A lot of people still feel that they can't talk about it or there's not enough people that are willing to go there with them or feeling like, Oh, that's too heavy there's a level of humanness that is still not accepted in society where people don't know that there's other people like them. And so they still feel trapped in shame and guilt around certain parts of their recovery. Uh, the other thing that the other, the last thing that I'll say that I talked about that is huge is also people like supporting people's recovery at work. Meaning even if people know that they're in recovery, if somebody wants to go away for like a lunch, a lunch meeting or break away from a morning meeting, it's part of their mental health. And people don't look at it that way. They almost get shamed or they're like, oh, you need to take time, like put in PTO or you need to work an extra hour late. You know, it's, it's that educational piece that's missing. And people are still being, I would I don't want to, are being judged for taking care of themselves. And the last thing is still this huge alcoholic culture where people, you have the happy hours, you have the holiday parties, you have all of these things. And so many people in recovery want to show up to these different events and people still like the, the society is still alcohol driven. There's been a shift. I will say there's a, there's been a big shift 
Uh, but it's one of those things too, where there's this assumption that everybody drinks and the moment you don't, you're looked at funny and there needs to be some sort of sway with assumption, especially when it comes to alcohol and the normalcy around that. So yes, things like that. Yeah, for sure. There's, I, I hang out with some people that don't drink. I drink, but I can do it like a gentleman as one of our guests had said, uh, but yeah, <laughs> club soda and a twist of lime, you know, God, you know, and not saying I'm not drinking, but I'm, you know, I think the implication is that you are, you are drinking. And so they want to, they want to kind of blend in that way and not stand yeah. out. The other yeah. stigmatism piece is, is not only a stigmatism around addicts, but their family, their family feels like they have all this shame and guilt because their brother or sister or daughter or somebody is, you know, is a, is, is addicted. And that is something that came out at the business mastery that Bryce and I had met at. I was actually the co-leader of the winning team for the competition that they do. <laughs> and we started mothers oh, against addiction. And the nice. thing that I was the most impressed with was we gave the people that would come to me during the breaks or, and want to tell their story. And they'd never told it before. Hey, my daughter is on heroin. Um, and they just didn't feel like they had a voice or that anybody cared. And it was, there was lots of tears and lots of sharing and it was beautiful to silence the stigmatism and, and give people a platform and make it okay to talk about it. It should be okay. We need to talk about it. It's, you said something about it being, you know, being acceptable to talk about. It's unacceptable not to talk about it. It is. And so, yeah, thank you for, for uh, bringing a voice to that on your oh. podcast. I think that's fantastic. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> Michael, what's been one of the most like surprising things that you've realized now that you're living a life in recovery that you didn't see before you got into recovery? Oh, there, I'm like, I could like, oh, there's so like, there's so much. Um, I think when I was actually thinking about this question, you know, I never thought that I could, that I could have friends and even my husband that I have, who's just incredible, but have people that love me for all that Michael Mazel is. I, in early recovery, because I'm a lot, let's be real. Like I high vibe till my head hits the pillow, like, wham, like I am a lot. And it's, um, it was one of those things, like I always hid, not at all the time, but I was like, are people going to accept me for, for me instead of, and not say like, God damn it, Michael, tone it down. Or like, why do you have to be that way? Or, oh, you're so annoying. You know, um, it wasn't until I got into recovery that, you know, people, uh, they loved me and they love me for me. And it was, it was crazy at first. It was really uncomfortable. I'm like, wow, you're not asking me like to change my hair. You're not at, you're not asking me to like do these, like tone it down or, you know, you you love me for me. And it was a big thing with, with my husband. Um, because like, even like, cause even a lot of, like, we get, we have a lot of friends that'll be like, they'll be like, Jesse, cause my husband's name is Jesse. They'll be like, Jesse, how do you do it? Like, like, what do you, how do you do it? And he's like, I love it. Like we are yin and yang, you guys, like he's chill, go with the flow. And I'm like control freak. energy. <laughs> and I didn't know it was possible to be with somebody like that. I could, I could cry and just spill my, my soul to, cause he's also in recovery. I will say that Jesse's in recovery too. And on my most horrible, horrible days where I look like hell in a handbasket and I have to tell him things that I'm so scared to talk about because I'm afraid he's going to judge me. 
he never judges me. My friends in recovery never judge me. And at first I was like, this is a farce. There's no way this is real. There is no way I can have this real of friends because I always wanted that my whole life. But then I always found out, you know, like people are talking smack and it was never real. And I don't have to question my friendships today or my, or my husband, my relationship with Jesse. It's like, I wake up even some days today, you know, like, you know, Bryce, like I will wake up and I just look at Jesse or I'll text my friends. And I'm like, I am so grateful for you. I am so lucky to have you in my life. Like you just saw me at my worst saying the most horrible things, but I have to say them so they don't hold power over me. And you look at me and you're like, cool, me too, buddy. Like, like, let's go ride. Let's go ski. Um, it, it blew me away. And it still does to this day. I'm like, wow, like I am, I am lovable exactly as I am. I don't need to change. And what a gift. Like I, I seriously, like, you know, I, this is the dork moment. I'll like, look at my husband sometimes you guys, and I'll like get teary eyed. And he's like, why are, why, what is wrong with you? And I'm like, I am. And I look at him and I'm like, I am so lucky. I just am so lucky. You love me for me. Like, and he's like, you're like, you're having one of your like gooey moments. Like God, stop. But it's true. Like, I, and I, and I'll look at my best friends, like, you know, Bryce, you know, I'll be like, I'll look at her and I'm like, this, thank you. Like, thank you for letting me just be me. And that's how I thrive in recovery are those honest, intimate relationships. It's like, I wish everybody could have what I have. It's like the coolest freaking thing ever. I wake up and I'm like, this is the best life. It's so amazing. So I would, I would love to un- unpack that. And I think what you, you said, Hey, I wish more people had what I have and in friends that don't judge you. And so how do you, how do you, what, what shifted for you? How did you find this, this group of friends? Cause I got to believe, um, you know, lots of people want that. And if they don't want it, they, they don't know they need it. Yeah. Right. I, I found it in recovery. Like I found it in, I found it in the rooms of AA. I found like, that is where like, and then I found it with my colleagues, like, um, like LB, um, who is in recovery, like, because I also work in the field of addiction. Um, and I felt like and that's how I found it. And I found these friends and we have the, and the reason these people exist is because they, they too crave that love and that acceptance, because I will say we, because we're all hanging out, we're all best buds now, but like we all drank and drugged because we weren't accepted. Like we felt we weren't accepted and we felt we had to drink and drug to fit in. And now being sober and being in a room like of recovery where everybody is choosing every day to work on themselves. And the only way we can continue to work on ourselves and grow as humans is honesty. You wouldn't believe how hard it is for people to be honest. Like my normal friends, I look at them. I'm like, I wish you would go through the big book. You know, like honesty is hard and it's a result of fear, like that fear. Um, I like to say like King alcohol and queen fear. And what I have found with all my friends, we have chosen rigorous honesty because if I can't be honest with myself and with the people around me, how can I, you know, morally with integrity grow? And that's how we, my friend circle and my husband choose to show up is in like bearing our souls, like, like, you know, like, like skinning me alive to be honest every day, because if I'm not honest, then I'm going to drink, I'm going to use because honesty is what keeps me sober. The moment I choose to be dishonest, 
um, that's when it just, there's a ripple effect. And it's cool because we all hold each other accountable to it. Like we all are like, Hey, I support your honesty. I support if you have to say something that you think that is the most horrible thing in the world. Like we have to say these things and not feel judged because we're humans. And I think that's what recovery, why recovery is so special in these friendships are is because we know we have to be honest and talk about what's going on because if we don't, and it lives in between our ears, the scariest neighborhood there is in between our ears and we don't talk about it, it holds power and it gets worse. So God, it's like, I just say it like the, the baseline is just, is honesty and that does that deep inner desire to be accepted. So how to quote, quote unquote, and these are your words. How do normal people find this, this radical honesty and, and I, I think, think the world would be a better place if, if people didn't <laughs> judge and people were right. I think it, it literally comes, it comes, it comes with choosing to have the tough conversations. And I think what's interesting is like my, both my sisters have kind of like integrated this into their friend circles uh, because they they've seen what has happened for me with my friends and, and they're both normal. Well, let's be real. They're not normal, <laughs> Just kidding. but like they literally, it, it takes, it takes someone in that friend group to be able to say, Hey, like, these are my needs as a friend. Like, these are the needs that I need met in order to feel like we're on the same page. Like, can you love me? Like having those conversations, can you love me for all that I am? Can you be a safe space? Because I want to be that for you. So I always tell my normal friends, like, create that invitation and create that safe space. Someone has to be bold enough to start the conversation because a lot of people are, again, there's that fear of starting that conversation of being like, wow, like, like, do people really want to hear this? And it's like, yes, the world is craving like normal people not in recovery. They are craving the friendships that I have. I know they are. And it's about, Hey, like it boils down to willingness. It's like, are you willing to engage in tough conversations so that you can find, hey, I, you can find those friends that are willing to engage in that sort of an intimate relationship? Because you're, And a lot of times people are afraid of that intimacy because they're like, I'm probably going to lose a lot of friends. And you're, you're probably right. There's a lot of people that don't want to go there because it's they're scary. Not your friends. They're not your friends. You know, <laughs> they're not your friends. So I just always say, to some, and I've told this to my, my sisters and like, they've thrived off of it um, by just saying, Hey, like, I want to have an honest conversation because I always say like, time is the one resource we never get back. And so how are we choosing to use our time with these friends? Is it, is it worth our time or is it just a space holder? You know? So it's that invitation, man. It's like, Oh, it's so good. That Gandhi quote just came to me. It's be the change you want to see in the world. Right. Yeah. That's fantastic. You, oh. you said, you said something earlier. I came across the quote by Desmond Tutu and this is something I've lived by for a long time. I just didn't have words really to put it into place. Uh, but he says, language is very powerful. Language does not just describe reality. Language creates the re reality it describes. And you gave a bunch of one-liners, some of your favorite AA one-liners. The one that you said, and it was when you were talking about the holidays, I would love for you to talk a little bit more about because you lit up when you said it. And it's, you get to create your own story. What does that mean to you? Or how did ah! you 
<laughs> Bryce is like, why did I have her on the podcast? No, I love oh, it. Fantastic. I love it so much. Like, I like we are like it is a lot of people don't believe that they get to create their story, their narrative. And they're so, creating it right now. They're just creating I, and, a shitty one. They're creating one they don't want. Yeah, they are creating, and so they don't a lot of people don't believe that they have power. They feel that they have to take in what society is like burdening us with. I will say burdening. And so I always tell everybody that I work with, I'm like, hey, like, what are you, how are you going to choose to create a story that makes you happy, that makes you come alive? Like nobody gets to tell you what your story is. Like you get to create it. And for some people, they're like, I have a choice. Like I actually have a a say in the matter. And I'm like, yeah, you do. So what are you going to do about it? And so I, it's people start small. I'm like, like, what are you going to create for today? Like, instead of like doing things that other people want you to do, I always say like, what is something that you've been dying to do, but you've never done because you are so afraid of the the approval of other people. And they'll, and a lot of people will be like, I don't want to celebrate. I don't want to go to Christmas. I don't want to play Pentatonics Christmas album. And I'm like, cool. What is it that you want to do? And they're like, I, I just want to sit and watch Netflix. Right. You know, or I don't even want to deal. It's like, then do it. And they're shocked. Like people get shocked. They're like, what? And I'm like, yeah, like every day, like, like I always say like thoughts become things like what, like whatever you think about, you're going to bring about. And if you're thinking about negativity or that you can't do things, that's what you're pushing to the world that you can't do things. And that you're not, and that's like, whatever you think about the answer is like the universe is going to receive it. And so I just say like, what is it like? And even on my voicemail, like my voicemail says like, create a great day. Like, so it's powerful. And I think it's something that people, again, it's really sad. Actually, I will say it's sad that so many people feel they can't create their own story because they are so, they are so riddled with fear of judgment. And I'm like, the moment you let that go, like you're like, I guess like the freedom you have is just like anything is possible. And I know that sounds so freaking cheesy, but it's so true. Like anything is possible when you just choose to say like, I get to write it. Like not mama or uncle, uncle Bob, like I'm writing my story. I love, Pen- I love pentatonics just so we're all clear. Oh, I know. <laughs> okay. I'm going, I'm going to the, I guess, I guess I'm going to the concert. It's fine. I, I just was playing it the other night. Mm-hmm. Nice. Uh, it's a little early for Christmas music for me. Christmas doesn't start till the day after Thanksgiving. <laughs> and as much as I want to fight that, my kids and, and Shana, they are all about Christmas right now. Uh, as soon as there's snow and it's snowed probably like a foot in the last 24 hours here. So I uh, can't wait for the mountain to open. We're usually open. They say Thanksgiving day, but it has never opened it. I can't remember the last time it opened that early. Normally it's sometime between Thanksgiving and Christmas. So yeah, I love that. Yeah. yeah. And I love the way you talk about language and all the one-liners you use. Cause you're absolutely right. People are, are creating their own reality right now. They just don't know that they're doing it and they're doing it through worry and through fear and through worrying about other people judging them. I was just at a Tony Robbins, um, it was a happiness conference, which kind of sounds weird to say. It used to be called spirituality, but he said nobody showed up and he changed the name to happiness, same content. Everybody showed up. <laughs> and the speaker on the last day he was, he came over via Zoom was Russell Brand, who has a fantastic recovery story, right? He's thriving in recovery. But one of the things he said stuck with me is that worrying is praying for shit you don't want. And so yes. 
quit, lay down the worry, quit worrying because all the things you're worrying about, you bring about because what you think about, you bring about. You're exactly right about that. Yeah. Oh my God. Yes. Oh, I could go on and on. Like, yes. Uh huh. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. It's pretty fantastic. Yeah. I love your energy. I love your vivaciousness. I love that. I uh, love that you guys said, thank you for getting sober because yeah. being in recovery because you are a gift to the world for sure. You know, dude, like it's a choice and that's what people like, what's so interesting. And like, you know, and Bryce has met me in person and I'm like, I'm like this all day. And people are like, how are you like this, Michael? And I said, I literally every morning when I wake up and my, and my, and my knees hit the floor to like pray about the day, I know that I have gotten into radical acceptance about how I get to show up every day. And I choose to show up. Like I am intentional. I choose to show up with like living in gratitude, like feeling alive, like the, like my, like, like just, I am so intentional every day. And that's how I get to where I'm at because it's a choice. And I always tell people like, I have, I trust me, I have shitty moments in my day. I, I do. I have shitty moments, but that's it. They are moments. It is not a whole day. And I am intentional about like, Hey, I'm going to have like, if there's bad moments, great, but how am I going to choose to move through it? because I don't want to sit in the ick. And so I just, like, it's almost like I've taken it to the extreme, but I, but I have a choice and choice is powerful. And when I see what's happened for me, when I've gotten into that radical acceptance of my life and my decisions, I'm like, dang, if this is what can happen for me now, I can only imagine what can happen later because I don't look at it as scary. I look at it as like, this is a responsibility to me and my humanness and my one life that I have, it's like, I have a responsibility to show up in a way that's going to bring me insane amounts of joy. So whatever I can do, that's going to bring me joy. I chase it every day. Oh, it's so like, it's like, why would you live any other way? Yeah. And I'm glad that you do live that way because you're an example <laughs> to other people. And that's why they're coming to you and saying, Hey, how, how, how do you do that? Is because they want that. They want that for themselves. And that was kind of the whole the five day seminar with Tony and happiness was it's a choice. You get to choose whether you're happy or not. I'm, I'm like happy. Most of the time I, I do get sad. I, I've, I was just sharing with Bryce. I've got a seven and a half year old Rottweiler that looks like she has bone cancer and fuck, I've cried lots of tears about that, but I, then I cry them out and then I'm done. And then I go back to being thankful that we're getting this figured out and that we have some options to extend her life. If that's what it is for as long as she's happy and healthy and, and she's been a great dog for a lot of years and um, it saddens me about it, but it doesn't, I don't allow it to, to color my whole day. Right. I, yeah, I it's perspective. Yeah. I love your perspective. The other thing I would encourage people not to do is, is fight back tears or, a, or apologize for for them. Right. People are always saying, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm late. I'm sorry. I'm crying. But don't be sorry. No. Like, try them out. You need to get them out. Quit stifling them, you know, let them, let them go. Oh, I always say thank you. Whenever I'm crying or if I'm late or if anything, I look at those people. I say, instead of saying, I'm so sorry, I say, thank you. Thank you for holding space. Thank you for understanding. Thank you for being here. Because then it's like, I'm acknowledging them instead of being like, like putting it all like, like, you know, on self, like it's all about me. It's like, no, thank you for being here. So yeah, yeah no, I get it. Why, why is it that you say that? Because I, I don't, I don't want it to be a negative. Like I'm so like, cause I'm not sorry for, for what I'm going through, but I'm thankful that you are there like in it instead of like running away or being upset. Like I choose to say, you know, thank you like for being understanding. Thank you for holding space. Thank you for not yelling at me. 
And so then they're like, wow, like you're acknowledging my presence in your ick. And that's huge for people to feel seen, even with, instead of making it all about me. And then they're like, wow, like, you know, like you're appreciative of what, you know, of my presence. So, yeah. It's, I love that fun. you always relate it to you're, you're coming back to like invite it's recovery, right. An invitation yeah. to choose and you're being yeah. intentional. And yeah. so that's super cool that like, you're being super mindful, even about something that might be feel icky. Yeah. Um, one of the things that keeps coming back to my mind and the question I want to ask you, and this might be, um, I don't know, we'll see so, <laughs> in your choosing, right? Some, some people have a hard time choosing, right. Or reframing. And I know like, you know, the therapies like CBT and, and DBT and, and some of these modalities that they, they use in the treatment world are to help people reframe their thoughts and think about things in a different way. How, or what are some of the techniques that you use to like help you choose better decisions for yourself? Oh, this is good. So when I look at every day, when I make decisions, right. I always like some of the things I always do is I like I pause and I always, I play the tape forward with decisions. Like even if they're like, like, like minuscule to some people or when they're bigger, like I play, I play the tape forward. And I even sometimes have to ask myself, what is the worst case scenario that could happen with this decision? What is the best case scenario that could happen with this decision? How do I handle it? Are there any liabilities? Um, and that's not with every single one, but I literally, I have to sit there to be like, okay, Michael, like if you're going to make this decision, pause, play the tape forward, ask yourself these questions, and then ask myself, like, am I going to be in acceptance of whatever the outcome is, whatever it is, good, bad, and different? Am I going to be, will it be, can I be in acceptance? Is it acceptable to me? And if it's not, then saying, what will I do differently? Like, how can I do it differently next time? Whenever I make decisions and I, even if like, I don't know if it's the right one, I don't, I always call it failing forward because even in my, even in my shitty decisions, I'm always learning a lesson and I'm failing forward. It's, there's something that has come of it, but I, the gift of pause is really helps me with decisions and I, and I'm not reactive because let, let's be real here, Bryce. I used to be, and I am still sometimes cause I'm not perfect. I'm reactive and first thought <laughs> wrong. First thought wrong is what I always say. First thought wrong. So I have to like, even if I'm super excited about it, I'm like, Oh my God, I know what I'm going to say. I am like, you know what? Like, give me a minute. And I don't have to give you an answer right now. I don't have to give anybody an answer right away. I give myself permission now to just sit in it because sometimes when I sit in it, like that's when I find the right answer. And when I've made hastily decisions, I'm like, Jesus, Michael, if you would have just sat in that for five fucking seconds, you would have said something different. So I give myself permission to not answer right, right away too. And that's a great way to, to not make decisions right away. Um, so yeah. <laughs> I love that. Where did that come from? Because we're taught since kindergarten to sit down, shut up, answer questions when they're asked. Right. Um, I, well, I learned, I learned that this in recovery, uh, first thought wrong, you know, cause like my, my first thought is always, is usually always based on self-will. It's always based on what's in it for Michael. Like what is, what, are, what's my game going to be or how are people going to look at me? And now it's like, when I choose to 
sit in it, I'm like, okay, is this decision going to be not only good for me, but is it going to be the best for everybody involved where I'm not causing harm? The last thing I want to do with decisions that I make, whether it's friends, husband, work, I want to cause the least amount of harm as possible. And so that's why I have to give myself permission to say, you know, I need to sit on this for, I need to sit on it, whether it's a minute, a day, I need to pause and think about those things. Do you think you learned that like in in the rooms? Did did the rooms teach you that? Or was it just like inherently like you just. No, the rooms. Yeah. Rooms. And then like, and like, just like friends in the room, like people with past experience, you know, people that have more recovery than me, you know, and like colleagues in the industry too, I'll say like, um, the, you know, like the biggest one for not causing harm is, is one I learned just from, from a colleague that I used to work with, just like, you know, like the last thing we ever want to do, like, I remember her telling me the last thing we ever want to do, Michael is cause harm. So make sure when you're making decisions, like, like the least amount of harm is what we want to go for, because we know we can, like, not everyone's going to be happy. Not every, but not, it's not always going to be rainbows and unicorns, but what is the path of least harm? And so I'm like, Oh God damn it. <laughs> so, so true. Yeah. The Dalai Lama, I just recently heard this and I'm going to probably botch it, but he had this saying that said, do good, but if you can't do good, don't do harm. Yes. You know? Oh, dude, that is good. Yeah. It's heat. Ooh. <laughs> Dalai Lama's got some, some lines too, man. He's got some heaters. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> Bright's dropping it like it's hot. Woo. <laughs> I'm writing that down. <laughs> well, Michael, I, uh, this has been phenomenal. You, you truly are the queen of like, uh, first of all, your energy is fantastic. <laughs> it's the best. I love it so much. Um, and you're such an amazing person and you're doing such good work and you're such, um, a light not only in this community, but, uh, just as an individual, as a person. Um, and you know, we've like, you know, we've, like you said, we've, uh, met each other several times in the real world. And I'm just so blessed to, uh, to call you a friend and to call you a colleague. And, um, thank you for sharing this space with us. Um, where can we, I know other than, uh, you know, Justin mentioned your podcast, where can people find you? Like what's your, your Insta, your Facebook, where can people find you online? Where can people listen to your podcast? Cause you're kicking ass and it's amazing. <laughs> and we want to hear these PC ideas, uh, I know. challenged. So where can people find you? Um, let's, you know, I, I'm just kidding. I am on, I'm like, what am I on? I'm like, I'm on Instagram as the underscore Michael Mazel, all spelled out M I C H A E L M A A S S E L. Don't you know that AA is in my last name? I was destined to go to AA and marry an alcoholic. <laughs> <laughs> um, so at the underscore Michael Mazel, Facebook, it's just Michael Mazel. Everything is public. So I don't, I don't have any walls up. I'm just, you know, like I just bare my soul. Um, my podcast is on Google, Apple, Spotify, all the things. It's Monday State of Mind and then Unfiltered Recovery. So you can find those on all your channels and then, yeah, um, my digits, you can't have them. <laughs> what, one awesome. brave man gave his digits out. Um, he, and he's actually going to be the first show that we launched. So we'll see uh, if that was a mistake or not. 
Michael, you're a beautiful soul. I love that you're unapologetically you. Uh, the world needs more of that. So thank you for being a light and um, drawing people to you. I would love for you to, um, to close with whatever advice you would have for our listeners. Oh, the, I'm like, you know, the only thing I'm going to say is that I just, I just like to say we have one life, you know, and, you know, makeshift happen. And like I said, time, time is the one resource we never get back. So how are you going to choose to use your time so that you can look back and be like, damn, that was a really great use of my time. So I love you guys. I support you. And just thank you guys so much for letting me be here. Ah, So fun. We love you too. And thank you for coming on. This was fantastic. You're amazing. (laughs) So are you. (laughs) 